Welcome to the Sounds of the World. We are your hosts, Hillary and Bill. Together, we're going to travel around the world to discover new music, discuss musical topics, and interview fascinating people. Our world is a buffet of music, and it is time to eat. All right. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Sounds of the World podcast. Um, Today, we have a very special guest that I've been fangirling over for quite a while now. Um, I've been a big fan of his uh, for quite a few years. And um, ever since I heard his piece, Peru Negro, and it's just such an honor to have him on. So we'll do a little bio. Uh, He's originally from Lima, Peru. Uh, He's won many awards, international awards, and has pieces composed um, that were performed by the Chicago Symphony, Philadelphia Orchestra, the Boston Symphony, the Fort Worth Symphony, and many, many more. Um, he, he's been performed in some of the greatest halls in the world, Carnegie Hall, Sydney Opera House, and uh, during the 2010 Youth Olympic Games in Singapore. Um, he's, had, he's been featured in numerous festivals, including Tanglewood and the Aspen Music Festival, the Grant Park Music Festival, and Dar- the Darmstadt International Course for New Music, and more, of course. Um, it's a great honor to have him on our show today. We're going to find out some more about him, his past, and some of his music, and find out his inspirations and things. So please welcome to the show, uh, Jimmy Lopez. <laughs> Hello. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for being here. It's uh, It's been great. And of course, it's been an honor to communicate with you over Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the preferred means of communication nowadays, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I've switched from Facebook IMs and things to now Instagram. It feels a little better. <laughs> trying to keep up with a new generation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, maybe you could give us just like a story about how you got into music or um, and what kind of inspired you to become a composer. Yeah, well, that we have to go back to when I was five years old, and I was in Lima, Peru, in a family of non-musicians. You know, my father was an architect, my mom is a now retired uh, kindergarten teacher, and my sister is a biologist. So music, and classical music especially, was not really something that my family was contemplating at all. But at five, I started to play the piano or play around with the piano, I'll say, because my sister was taking lessons. So I I think I was bothering her so much that my mom decided, okay, you're going to get your own lessons. And that way I'll keep you quiet, you know. And it worked. (laughs) (laughs) I was hooked. I was hooked, but I didn't take it uh, seriously in the sense that I didn't know it was going to become a profession until my early teens, I think. And that's when I discovered... Uh, the music of Bach. Up until then, I was exposed to what every kid was exposed, you know, top 40, you know, I was basically grew up in the 80s, I was born in 78, uh, the beginning of the era of music videos, so I was, uh, you know, hooked into all that, you know, I don't know, Bonnie Tyler, Michael Jackson, um, you know, Madonna, but then Bach came along and it just rocked my world (laughs) in ways. And really, my ear, for some reason, reacted to the intricacies of counterpoint and the way that harmonies were flowing and the relationship between vertical, you know, harmony and horizontal counterpoint. And I decided I wanted to look into that. So 
I really didn't know how to read music properly. Uh, my teacher had only been teaching me with something akin to the Suzuki method in the sense that I was memorizing most of what I was playing and using a system of numbers. So the score was kind of a reference. And then I really had to go and, and really properly learn how to read music. And I spent a lot of time doing that on my own because I, I just wanted to play. You know, I started with inventions, the Bach inventions, and that just opened my world. So mm. from then onwards, I think I, I, you know, I discovered all the other great composers. And so I, as I was growing up and I, I decided, okay, music is going to be my thing. And when I was 16, um, that's when I got lucky because the Lima Philharmonic Orchestra was established uh, by Miguel Hart Bedoya, now a conductor who is based in Fort Worth, Texas. And he basically that, uh, you know, really opened my ears to the orchestra, the orchestra world. And so at that point, I think is when I knew that, okay, composing is, is what I want to do rather than than performing or playing so uh, but you know how you decide to be a composer is also something that um it in part you choose and in part it chooses you because it is something that you discover you have this ability to write to create music and it's something that gives you satisfaction and nothing else nothing else does you know so it feels almost almost inevitable but once you feel that it it uh, it, it is something that you really like doing uh you know that nothing else is going to give you that satisfaction so for example i never went into video games you know even though uh before discovering the p and, the, and before discovering bach actually i was i was into atari and all that but the, <laughs> by that time bach came i you know mario bros came and i was not anymore uh interested in that because i was my time was just spent just studying music you know, and that was my a new big discovery and I knew I had so much ahead of me so much ahead of me you know I started to read the biographies of composers mm -hmm. and um and I I think the whole world just uh became that you know all of a sudden that was my focus yeah, yeah. now I understand that I was never one to be playing hours and hours of video games I would much rather spend hours playing piano and and just reading music and music scores, you know? So right. it was the opposite, because I had a video game that I loved the music in, and so I would play it so that I could hear the music. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, if there's something that appeals to you in it, right? Um, and you can learn through it as well, you know? There's, oh, yeah. there's a number of things that you can, you can do. Um, but in, yeah, in this case, I think that music uh just seemed like such a steep learning curve for me at that point in time i felt wow and also i didn't help that i was obsessing over like the biographies of child prodigies like liszt and mozart you know i'm thinking right. wow <laughs> i think i'm behind way behind these guys <laughs> i need to catch up but you know eventually i uh, you know i realized everyone has their own path and you know whatever whatever your background will eventually contribute to whoever you are as an artist it just took me a few years to understand that but but it really um i was taking inspiration from them but mostly from the music itself to be honest yeah yeah that was always my problem is comparing myself to where these greats had were at my age you know so like 
reading Mozart and, you know, he wrote his first opera at what, like six or seven. And I'm like, I did maybe like a short little one minute piece, <laughs> you know, it's like, I got to keep up. I got to get going. What am I doing? <laughs> yeah. I, I, and, and, you know, but you start to think to measure up, but then, but then over time you encounter uh, guides in your life and teachers who, and I think the one person that was really the mentor, especially in my late teens that I discovered is this man called Enrique Turriaga. Um, he died, uh, you know, recently, uh, almost, he was about to turn 102 years old. He was born in 1918. And uh, he was just such a huge influence for so many people, you know, when I met him, he was already 77 years old, you know, but, but like he was like full of life, full of life. And and we will spend sometimes eight, one famous night, we spent like 10 hours, you know, uh, at his home, Uh, this lesson just would never end, but it was, it was just fascinating. You know, because he was teaching me the principles of harmony and counterpoint and composition, but by taking out all these different methods. You know, for a single counterpoint rule, he will bring three different methods and explain, oh, Jefferson does it like this, and then Salser and Shafter say this about that. And, and always wanted me to think about not just memorize the rules. You know, they had a reason to be there. And every little exercise I will write it was like a mini composition. You know, it had to be crafted beautifully. So even if it was like a two-part counterpoint with a cantus firmus, you know, <laughs> that's, that had to be beautiful. And you really understand that, you know, even the most grandiose of orchestral works uh, needs to have a very strong basis on some fundamental principles. And some of those are not, you know, the principles are sometimes very simple. Even like the most simple motifs can be give birth to the most complex symphonies. So not not to be, you know, it's something not to be skipped. And I remember when I was first writing for orchestra, I just went into it, you know. And I, of course, it was a disaster. And <laughs> <laughs> but he looked at the score and then he was like, well, I admire all the effort you put into this, but there is a lot that we need to discuss. <laughs> I wrote like a 45-minute concerto for piano that is never going to be published. And it's somewhere really well hidden here in my, uh, in my apartment. But it's just a testament to, you know, what I wanted to do. And then he said, we need to go back to the basics, you know, forget all these orchestral instruments. Let's just go back to two-part counterpoint and, you know, start from there. So that was very humbling. And uh, I didn't take it well at first. And I was a bit rebellious. I even left his class for a little bit um, and came months and months later, you know, a little embarrassed and apologetic, but he took me back. And yeah, I'm glad he did because then I, then I was really able to learn. It takes some humility to really learn. Yeah. Yeah, I think that ability to realize, no, I was actually getting something really good out of this. It takes some time and, you know, a little personal growth. Yeah, yeah, you and you need to mature, you know, over time. And uh, it's not always, you know, when someone really 
you, it makes you face your shortcomings. Uh, it can be embarrassing at first, but but they do it because they know that you can progress. I mean, and I really have, he had faith in me. Uh, he was, you know, he charged me less and less as, as time went by to the point that he was giving me lessons almost for free. You know? Wow. You know, it's not important for me to, you know, it's just, he said, don't worry about it. You know, he, he really, it, it was a pleasure for him to teach. And I think I've, I've never met um, or never even uh, felt that I could you know, go into teaching <laughs> until I am able to give somewhere along those lines, because I feel that, you know, teaching is such a, such an important job and I have the greatest respect. But I haven't done it so far, really. I haven't taught uh, composition. Now that I'm saying, I, perhaps one day I will, but um, but having him as a role model, now I understand that the bar has been set really, really high, you know, at least for me. Well, I'd sign up to be a student of yours, so. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll keep you in the list. <laughs> So what was your your first kind of success, like your first bit of success? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it depends. I mean, what might be considered success at that point in time, perhaps nowadays it's seen as, as not very important. Uh, but when did I feel that, that sense of accomplishment? I would say... Um, I, I think that, you know, being able to enter the Civilis Academy was a huge boost in confidence for me. Because I was a young composer from Peru who, who really wanted to, um, I wanted to learn, but I also wanted to, it was not only about knowledge, it was also about living, you know, music. And as much as I loved um, and I continue loving Peru and Lima, you know, the, the classical music scene is not as developed, you know, as, as the one in Europe. And so I, I thought, no, I, I need to go there and I need to, to live to breathe it. And I think Finland was a really, a really big turning point for me. So being admitted to the Civilis Academy was a, was a good boost of confidence in, because they, he basically, they were telling me, yeah, we see that you have potential. You can become something. And, and I was working really hard before that, for sure. But I think after that, some of my most important, or most of the works from my catalog start after, you know. There's two or three works that I that precede those, those years. But for the most part, my catalog starts after I go to Finland. And... But, you know, it took many years for me to write my first hit piece, so to say. Uh, I wrote a lot of chamber music and I wrote uh, some orchestral works. But in 2007, precisely the year that I was leaving uh, Finland, I wrote a piece called Fiesta, which is a 10-minute piece in four movements. And that was a commission from Miguel Harvedoy again to... Uh, to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Lima Philharmonic Society. So they wanted something celebratory. And and I was, at that point in time, I just wanted to experiment with incorporating very different things, like very, an eclectic kind of uh, amount of things. So I 
you know, there's a bit of techno and trance and there's like Latin music and I put congas and, you know, there's, there's, I put everything in there, but I, I really wanted, it was kind of a personal challenge to make a piece that is, uh, that, that makes sense, that it doesn't feel like just a mashup of different elements, but it's organically integrated and that it has a voice of sorts and also an arch. So, um, it was, I had no idea that it was going to travel that far. The first uh, version of that piece was for, uh, for very few musicians, I think 12 musicians or, or so. Wow. So, and then, then Miguel played it. And then he asked me to, uh, to orchestrate it. And after that, I orchestrated it. I think he started to play it everywhere. And apparently people started to like it. So, I mean, to date, I really, I promised myself to stop counting after the hundredth performance and I have, so it's, it's already above a hundred. I don't know how many at this point in time. Wow. But it has traveled awesome. far and wide. It has traveled further than I have ever, you know, all the way <laughs> to Siberia, from Siberia to New Zealand, you know, it has been played. Wow. Um, and so that's that that I will consider like my entry point to the to the wide world, right? Um personally there there's other you know milestones prior to that, like the year before I wrote a piece called America Salvaje, uh which has become a favorite of Andres Orozco Estrada, to who is a principal conductor in Houston. He um and so that piece, the reason why that piece is important to me. It's because it's the first time that I incorporate Peruvian instruments and Peruvian elements into my music. And that came out of an identity crisis after living so many years in Finland and so far removed from home. And, you know, Finland had become my new home, but still I felt a little orphaned and people were like trying to figure out who am I? You know, what it is that you have to bring to the scene, you know, what it is that you you are going to contribute. Are you going to sound like another European composer? <laughs> or is there something special in you? And I started to feel, well, you know, I, maybe I should go back and look into my own country. And it has a very rich musical heritage, but, you know, not, not necessarily in the classical field, but, you know, in general, I mean, culturally, it, it's a very old ancient country. Right. Civilization started there 5,000 years ago or so. So, there's a long tradition that I decided, well, you know, I'm going to look into that. And of course, it was in my ears already. You know, I grew up listening to it. I was just not paying that much attention because my focus was in Europe and Mozart and Bach, you know, at some point in time. But then I realized, wow, there's a wealth of elements that you can look into this. And so that that marked an important an important step so that was a personal kind of important step for me america salvaje but then again the piece that really made my name enter the scene was fiesta in all honesty after that other milestones have come you know most notably i think bel canto which is an opera that i wrote in 2015 well it was premiered in 2015 it took me three years to write but it was it was probably the most high profile commission you know one of the most high-profile commissions I have had, and and also a great challenge, you know, to to write a, an evening, a full evening um, length opera. So over over time, you have different milestones, you know, but each one is important in their own in their own way. And 
and you just tackle one at a time and you try to make your best on each each piece as, as they come along now i was going to ask you how you got how you started fusing your um peruvian background into this kind of western classical so this is great i was i loved learning that <laughs> yeah and, and and you know why that is something that I am not so concerned with anymore, but it was a concern at the time. So, because I, I think I was, I was, um, I had also entered, you know, deep into the modernist scene in Germany. Like I went to Darmstadt three times in a row on the Donau Washington Music Festival, and I, well, it was great because it was a completely different uh, audience. Uh, the expectations were different, and you were allowed to experiment and do crazy things. You know, so even though that might not necessarily have ended being my main strand, I will say, all all the works that I wrote during those years also contribute to what I who I am right now. You know, I have a string of TED and I have a piece called Incubus, and if you listen to them, they don't sound anything like Fiesta, and <laughs> you know they're they sound very much like Darmstadt or what you would encounter in the you know those. Uh, hardcore avant-garde circles right <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was enjoyable to write an experiment because they give you carte blanche you know it's just and and, and people and people have their ears open there too open to that you know perhaps right. not so open to other things uh but then again you know how to navigate you, one has to learn how to navigate through through different places but you know nowadays uh after of course, you know, having lived, I left Peru when I was 21, I'm 43 now, and I've lived in, in, in Finland, and I lived in Paris for a year, and I've lived here in California for 15. So I am a sum of all those things, you know, a composer, especially nowadays, is really, it's really hard to pinpoint um, the geographical origins and how much of that influences. Sometimes it is a choice, you know, it is a choice of where the composer wants to uh, to direct their vision and, and their focus. And in my case, I really like to keep my ears open. You know, I've, uh, I even have a Cota Concerto, actually, that I wrote in 2004. And that was also extraordinary as an experience, you know, to write for a, a, a Japanese instrument that I had no knowledge prior. But... So nowadays, I mean, it, I, if someone says, yeah, I'm a Peruvian composer, yes, you know, but that only tells part of the story. Right. Only tells part of it. Because there is uh, all those years in Finland and all these years in California have had an impact on me because I've always kept my ears open. And my identity keeps evolving. You know? But nowadays, uh, unlike those days, I'm not concerned with that anymore. Uh, I think I'm just, I'm very comfortable in my own skin and just keep exploring. Now the challenge is with my, within myself, really. I'm trying to, I think the greatest challenge of any human being, in fact, is trying to understand their own voice, you know. And with artists, it's is very clear. Uh, that search needs a lot of honesty and, and, and also bravery, sometimes because you might need to make choices that might be unpopular you know mm -hmm. oh, yeah. or might not be many commissions uh, at first but you know i really strive to evolve artistically and i 
because I'm not in a commercial world, I am not constrained by those things. Like, you know, um, and I really like commissions where I have more freedom to explore. Yeah. So yeah. that that's something that I, I try to, to preserve always, uh, my freedom. And if a commission comes with too many specifications, then I might not, I might just skip it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, some limitations are great um, to stimulate your creativity, but too many, they really stop and they start to curtail, uh, you know, they cut your wings. So then, yeah. then you, you, cannot, you cannot take that anymore. And, and you know, as a, it depends on what stage in life you are too. But I think at this point in time, I'm, I kind of know what projects are going to work. I've, I now have experience. You know. Also, you, good to identify your collaborators. You know, that's very right. important. Right. You there can be a little more picky now. Correct. Yeah, there might or might not be chemistry, but you know that uh, if there is no real chemistry, or artistically speaking, it's better not to embark uh, on a project with them. And no hard feelings, you know, you just know that, oh, perhaps we're not that compatible artistically, and perhaps it's, you know, better to part ways at this stage, early on the project, rather than going far deep into it and not being able to, to succeed. Yeah. Hillary and I both have a little bit of experience, her more than I do, of kind of the life-changing of being in Europe when you're a classical kind of derived composer, you know, and um, I mean, that's how we met was in Europe. And then, and then she went back for her master's there. So. Where in Europe? I spent a year in England and Birmingham, England. Um, How long were you in Finland for? Seven years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Even by the, the end of my, my one year over there, um, I was like nodding my head when you were speaking about like that idea of like you start to not lose your identity, but you, I don't know, it's, it's, it's so hard to put into words just that being in this entire another physical place and you're working on your creative self and you're trying to find your creative voice. Um, at least for myself, I found myself um, asking like deeper questions that I never would have considered if I had never left home because um, I never would have questioned it. But, you know, living in in England, it was, you know, you start speaking with their dialect and you start eating their food and you're like, oh, wait, am I still the person that I was before I got here? Yeah, and, 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 and you know, in a way, you are and you're not. I mean, there's, you start, to, you start, uh, you become richer. I mean, all, and, but really, have, I think this is something that all artists should experience at some point, you know, this. Uh, just getting out of the comfort zone and it yeah. helps and it sparks creativity too. There's a response that you have to it. And, and it, it only, I think it only expands your horizons, you know, um, being able to be somewhere else. And in Finland, I spent enough time, you know, to learn the language and, and to make a lot of new friends. So it, it really felt like, like second home to me. And, and my links with them are strong also, which is something I really appreciate. Strong is strong enough, I mean, that my sister still lives there for different reasons, actually. She moved there <laughs> three years later and she's now married to a Finn and she lives in Lahti. So that that I wasn't expecting, but but um, that has 
you know, just helped <laughs> keep my yeah. ties with Finland like, even stronger, right? I think um, something that was really big for me in my my study abroad was, um, well, I'm from a, a rural area in Montana um, in the United States, and classical music is, you know, very bottom of the barrel for the music that you're going to find here. Um, we do have a symphony in my town, but it's not very, I don't know, we're always playing the same Beethoven because that sells tickets. And um, it was so life-changing to experience um, just this European mentality on music and see how passionate um, this whole continent is about their, their music and their art and being steeped in that. Um, did you experience any of that, like in Finland, you know, changes from, you know, coming from Peru where you said it doesn't quite have the robust classical musical scene but finland absolutely does and, and you're yeah and what was interesting about finland too is that you know it is not at the core of of europe it is also at, a, at an interesting place at a meeting at a meeting spot of sorts because it had you know it spent centuries under swedish influence and then under the russian empire too and then it only gained in its independence a little over 100 years ago so they also have been experiencing this kind of uh, having to fight for their identity. And part of it has been, uh, Sibelius has been a, like a major figure in it. So music has brought a lot of identity and the music of Sibelius and other composers. And then there's a, um, an epic uh, called uh, Kalevala, which is you know, the same way that in uh, India has the Mahabharata, for example. Uh, they have this uh, collection of, of stories that had been passed orally over the centuries and were gathered um, by a writer in uh, Elias Lundret back in the 19th century. And that also gave a sense of, of, of unity. So it was interesting to be in that country in particular because they were also trying, they were really um, very adamant in like creating an identity. And when I got there, you could see the support and importance that music had, you know. So it was not only about, because they don't have a, lo a long tradition like Germany or France. You know, they, they actually were supporting a lot of contemporary music. They were creating their canon, you know. So that was a fascinating part. You got there and you will see that, you know, composers were asked, you know, for their opinion on matters that were not necessarily musical, like politics and stuff they were like they were uh opinion shapers something that you don't see um well i have definitely not in peru but also in other parts of the world is and but even even finland is not immune so that has been changing over the last 20 years or so but at the time when i got there um you could see you know the the amount of, of composers that that are that were working, but Finland at some point they did the, the right thing and they understood that you know we need to support our artists and so they have a lot of composers working on new music and and that was very important uh, to me as well. Just seeing that vitality and all the new music festivals, as you said, you know, well, yeah, they had the traditional concerts, but even the large orchestras in Finland, they are commissioning works constantly that's so um, cool. <laughs> yeah i know that's that's, that's very really cool really, really great. yeah so i took i take that with me and and i and and that's how uh, i i really also was able to further 
you know, continue writing for the orchestra because they do have a lot of orchestras in, and I was able to, to test my music and, and, um, and that definitely shaped the way my career, you know, went as well. Man, that's incredible. <laughs> I think a huge barrier for a lot of composers is that access to these, you know, large groups. I think if I wanted to, you know, just where I'm currently situated, if I wanted to write for orchestra, I'd have such, you know, I would, it would take a lot to get those resources um, in front of me, whereas it's just so incredible to hear about, just to hear that other countries have these, you know, investment in these resources and they're creating, um, just something you said about creating that canon that just really blew my mind for a second. That's, that's just incredible. Yeah. And, and you know, I've, I've heard that expression before. I mean, and here in the U.S., I think, for example, um, there was the Opera America conference the other day, um, it was last year, and um, Francesca Sambello was talking about that, and David Gockley, they were talking about how, especially in David's time, um, when he came into the scene, most opera companies in the U.S. were run by uh, Italians or Germans, mostly, and they were staging, you know, foreign operas, and so his generation was uh, kind of set up as a mission to create an American canon. And I think they have succeeded. Because ever since, we have a a wealth of American operas that have been written. But it has to be a concerted effort. Mm -hmm. Like, opera companies have to make the decision that, okay, we are going to commission operas from American composers. And, And there you go, it happens. But there has to be a decision behind it. And... And, you know, writing, for example, especially opera is one of the most prohibitive and expensive art forms. And so even myself, for example, trying to take off the ground some opera projects is being a challenge. And it continues to be, especially after COVID, you know. I haven't given up my hopes, but but that's that's how it goes. You know, it's, it's uh, when there's a lot of resources, it just takes a lot of effort. Until we have the large opera companies willing to take the risk uh, more in that direction, we won't be able to really substantially change that canon as well. Yeah. So we just need to take it to another level now. The resources are there. It's, it's the willingness uh, to make it happen at this point in time. And the calculator risks. So some companies, what they have started to do is they commission chamber operas, which they present in smaller theaters that are not the main stage. I think that's been a very smart initiative, you know, because um, it allows for them to take a moderate financial risk and they don't know, you know, so they keep, they keep uh, their finances strong with the warhorses at the main stage, but then they experiment on the small theater. What I would love to see now is some of those small theater works being translated into the big stage. You know, I think that's that's also important. So that it doesn't remain constantly on the side because that's also a risk if we continue to just put it on the side. It's like, well, that's happening there. And then we have like this, we create a different audience that, <laughs> you know, and then these right. audience would never ever be interested in this. So, but we need to create a bridge as well. Right, but, right. But all of those are decisions that need to be made, you know, collectively. Yeah. Yeah. Um, If you had any 
um, advice for people who might want to write for orchestra? Um, what kind of advice would you give them? The advice that I've been given uh, since I think the last 10 or 15 years, just gather your own orchestra. <laughs> uh, it's going to take a lot of phone calls and is a lot of time, but just make it happen. What I have to tell you, when I was in Finland, so I, this is 2005, I left in 2007. I wanted, I knew that I wanted to, or I was already applying for like PhD programs in the US. So I knew that I would eventually leave, but I didn't want to leave you know, without uh, presenting some of my works for orchestra. So I tried reaching out to orchestras, including the Sibelius Academy Orchestra, but no professional orchestra will be interested in presenting. And I was still a student and the, the timing wasn't working for them. And obviously I was competing with, you know, way bigger names that so they were not quite interested. So even a country that's very supportive, it's tough. It was not, it was not that easy, but I just made a decision. I have, I had a few friends um, at the Sibelius Academy and we said, okay, we're going to create this group and we're going to make this concert happen. So we applied for grants and I went to embassies and I went to different places and we gathered I think it was 10,000 euros in money that I was able to raise on my own. And with the generosity of 70 or plus musicians that, you know, we called, I think I probably made 300 calls or more, you know, from them at least 70 said, yeah, we're going to do it for a minimal fee. It was almost like, just, just please do this. This is just a token of gratitude, you know, for you to show up to rehearsal and do this. But they were all young. They're all st- students and they also wanted to help and and that's what we did you know we have minimal budget and we presented a full evening of my orchestral works wow and i got a recording out of it and of course that recording those recordings open many doors because what better way to present your work than just, you know, showing the score accompanied by a good performance, because those musicians in the academy were good also. So what I tell young young composers is like, don't wait. Don't wait, because if you you want to do this, you just just have to find, if if it's not orchestra, it's fine. If you want to do, uh, you know, a chamber orchestra concert, that's fine. Or even chamber music recorded. But even if you want to do orchestra, it is possible. and then, you know, once you show what you can do, then others will pay attention to you. But I wouldn't wait until, until the doors of a professional orchestra open up. Another a shortcut, of course, will be like competitions, but competitions are a double-edged sword. More than competitions, I will say workshops. Like the American Composers Orchestra has this workshop that is really worth applying for. And and so that that is good because everybody gets a chance to listen to their works. Everybody who makes it to make to makes the final cut, which is better than just competitions where the first prize is awarded and played, and that's about it. You know? Right. Uh, but basically, just do it yourself. Do it yourself. And and if you are young and you you have the energy and the strength and the the contacts then you can make it happen, you know, and then others will follow suit. 
yeah. incredible. Just thinking of the 300 phone calls that you made. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I know, I know. But I, I mean, it took a year and a half to put it together, right? Just, just to put it together. Of course, the uh, rehearsals were the last week, right? But leading to that week, I had been working on, on that project for the longest time. Uh, but it was all worth it you know, because I was able to finally present what I do. Yeah. And, and this is what I do. I write music for orchestra. So I need to showcase that, you know, it's not, it's not a whim. <laughs> <It's> yeah. just... <laughs> this is, this is what I do. I need to show it. It's just a, a, a complicated, expensive art form and, and symphony orchestras can be like fortresses sometimes, you know, if you don't have the right, the right contact also a lot of you know when you are young you want to skip uh steps sometimes you want to make friends with like the conductor who's already successful but what's more important is to make friends with the conductor who is you know in the conducting class still trying to make his or her way up mm -hmm. and when you work with them and you create this connection and they believe in what you do then you can you know rise together and um there have a lot of, you know, one partnership that I, I know, for example, that was such was Isabeka Salomon and Magnus Lindbergh. And they really, you know, they started together and Isabeka brought Magnus's music out to the white world. And they're about the same age, you know. And so that's, that's what happens. You, you just have to trust uh, your colleagues and your friends. Don't try to, you know, reach out to the big maestro because they might, they might or they might not pay attention to you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so just inspiring to hear, I think. But thank you uh, so much for being on. It was great talking to you. And, um, you know, Bach is kind of the gateway drug for a lot of people. Um, I really enjoyed <laughs> hearing you talk about your music and your life and, and Finland. Um, so just thank you so much for being on. It's been a complete honor. No, absolutely. Thank you for allowing me and, you know, other people a space to you know, share our ideas. Um, for the most part, I think people just, uh, they just talk about, you know, the, the result or the end result, but there's a whole process behind it. And, I think it is it's just about not giving up and just and just working, working constantly because um it it does take a lot of determination, you know, to make it in this in this field. But I mean, as you said, I like the word game with drug because in a way it is it is addictive, you know, it's something that yeah you do that it gives you the pleasure, but it also feels that it is rewarding like anything like unlike anything else so so definitely music is something that um as hard as it might be you know that moment when it when it when it's rewarding it is it is just it justifies all the hardship <laughs> that you had to go through <laughs> I think. it's so true those 300 phone calls oh right? yeah you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> talk about dedication all of it Oh, it's been such an honor to hear your story and it's it's just so inspiring to hear 
I don't know, it's not only the hard work that you give and the, the love and passion you have for your craft, but that it's, you know, paid off and that you're getting to do this amazing, amazing thing, which is writing music. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Sounds of the World podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. There are links to everything in the episode description and also on our website. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sounds of the World. Show support for Sounds of the World podcast. Please join our Patreon where you can have access to our after-party discussions with guests, discounted merchandise, and even more. If you have any questions, answers, or episode suggestions, please email us at Sounds of the world podcast at gmail.com. Well, Bill, I think I'm going to go have a beer now. Hey, there you go.